We're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we are talking about bad medicine. Ed, this topic idea came to me because of the one question we get over and over and over advocating for the elimination of the billable hour and the timesheet, and that is, if your guys' ideas are so good, why haven't they been adopted? Mm-hmm. And I've looked at that topic for now close to 20 years, and I've got a multi-part answer to it, but okay. one of the big parts is this topic today, because we're comparing profession to profession. Um. And that's kind of that's kind of what led me to this topic. It wasn't any any uh, curiosity or really interest in in medical history, but then once I started studying it, I became fascinated by it, and now I'm kind of obsessed with it, and because I think there's so many lessons from this profession to any other profession, be it law, accounting, whatever, and that's that's kind of why we're doing this. Well, exactly, Ron. And I think that the, the, the big learning f- that you can take from medicine as well as all of the other other places is that it, sometimes it's really hard to get rid of bad ideas, right? The whole no- notion that un- unlearning is, is more challenging than learning in a lot of cases. And I think there's a, a great quote from Alvin Toffler that says the, the, the illiterate of the 21st century will be those who, not who can't read, but those who can't unlearn, learn and relearn. And I think that, that that that's really part of this. But uh, you know, just to kick this off, Ron, in in the book that I'm going to talk more about later is th- there's a great quote from Arthur C. Clarke, which I think really sums this up. And that is, he says, when a distinguished but elderly scientist, or a, you know, substitute in your professional of choice, right? So I'll substitute it in you know, professional, states that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. But when he states that something is impossible, he is almost certainly wrong. <laughs> I love that. <clears throat> you know, and I think that that's that's what we we hear about billable hours and timesheets and all this stuff is it, it, you know, it's it's those that are mer- most certain, right? They they'll no, you guys you you guys are just wrong. And to be fair, we are hearing that less and less for sure so the the ideas are breaking through but you know not not without a lot of pain to you um well and me i guess but mostly to you because you've been doing a lot longer than i have yeah it's diffusing a new theory into a profession which is what this topic is about it 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 really is measured and not just in decades sometimes but in centuries i mean Mm -hmm. some concrete examples of things that we just you know take for granted today, but were rejected for centuries, mm-hmm. and that that's kind of astonishing when you think about it. So we're we're kind of looking at three books today, really two. 
Um, the first one is uh, The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grisly World of Victorian Medicine by Lindsay Fitzharris. It's a recent book. I think it was published this year. And shout out, Ed, to Stephanie West Allen, who uh, made me aware of this book. And as soon as I read her little synopsis of it, I said, I got to get a hold of this. And after I read that, I think I told you about how great it was. And I just, yeah. and I just thoroughly enjoy. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. But what struck you about this book? The, certainly the parallels between this and, and what we're, we're going through. Um, but what struck me about this about the book itself is just how well written it is and how and and just a fa- a fantastic story that Lindsay Fitzharris weaves together and you know there there are there are moments in in this book Ron that are just absolutely laugh out loud funny and at the same time you're 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 cringing from from the thought of it and i'm gonna i'm gonna read one so let's just say you know n- not necessarily suitable for 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 children from here on because yes. um, you know but because remember that you know back back in back in in the, the day of, of the of surgery there was no such thing as anesthesia at all right so it was speed that was what was so important yeah and you know how quickly you could get through things that was the skill of the surgeon right and there the, she tells this great story about and this gets a little confusing because the guy's name the guy's name is list Dunn, not lister we're going to talk about joseph right. lister but list 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 Dunn was one of these great gifted surgeons and she it tells a story of where he accidentally sliced off a patient's tex- testicle along with the leg that he was amputating right and then, it, it, but his most most famous mishap happened when he when he was working so rapidly that he took off three of his assistants' fingers while s- switching blades, sla- and slashed a spectator's coat. Right. Right. Both the both the assistant and the patient died of gangrene later, and the unfortunate bystander d- died from 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 uh, fright right on the spot. And I love this line. This is she says, "It's the only surgery in recorded history to have a three hundred percent fatality rate." <laughs> I know it's it's killer. And then to to set the scene even more vividly in people's mind, you got to remember that these these doctors would approach these surgeries wearing rotting flesh, blood encrusted aprons, <laughs> and and they they even said, "Yo, know, that whether it was the surgery ward, which they were usually doing in front of a live audience." You know, right. Students. Oh, yeah. And, no, because this is entertainment, too. Yeah. Other interested people off the street, you know, could come in and watch these things. And and they, you know, they said that the, the room itself, it had this good old hospital stink, they called it. And in fact, they used to call <laughs> hospitals uh, houses of death because they had this just terrible smell. Uh, and, and one thing that really struck me at is the operation in 1843 which was the first time that uh, a, a British surgeon, anyway, it was done actually the year before in the USA, used ether mm-hmm. to put out the patient. And it was called the Yankee Dodge. Now, I, I want you to keep in mind what you just said about being able to cut off a leg in mm-hmm. 30 seconds, because that's going to come back, because that plays a big part in the resistance of these surgeons to change. Because there's skill in doing that. And if you think deeply about what it takes to saw off a leg in 30 seconds with no anesthesia. Right. You have to hold down the patient. The patient's screaming, right? And mm-hmm. you have to I mean, that becomes part of your skill set. 
and part of your self-identity. Mm-hmm. And anything that challenges that challenges you at the very core of what you are. Sure. So the, so what you're saying is the Yankee Dodge was as well. Yeah, sure. It's easy if you put them under. That's right. right? The Yankee Dodge. Can you believe that? I, I am so glad we have the Yankee Dodge. Uh. <laughs> no kidding. Well, because before that, and I, I, I did know this, Ron, but I didn't, didn't realize that there was some crossover here. But, the, you know, the word mesmerize. Yes. Right. Come, comes from this guy, Mesmer, who was, was a, basically a hypnotist that thought that if, if he waved in, uh, in front of his patients, that it would influence them and it would, would you know, put them to sleep. You know, uh, mesmerization, right? And that's mm-hmm. where, it, where it came from. It was, it was an early form of an attempt of, I guess, hypnosis around uh, to, to, to get people to be in less pain during surgery. Right, right. And, and you know, surgery back in these days... Um, you, most, for the most part, caused sepsis and other infections, and, and most deaths were the post-operative infections. I mean, if you had a leg amputated or some other extremity, you had a better chance than if they, say, cut open into your chest. Right. Because if, it, you know, if they did some type of invasive surgery like that, that you were bound to you know, walk away with some type of infection from the hospital. In fact, one of the things that Fitzharris points out was that surgery was safer in people's homes than it was in the hospitals because of just, you know, the general infection rate. But that was really expensive to get a surgeon to come to your home. They would do it and list. And I think she recounts even some stories of Lister doing it. Did, didn't mm-hmm. they operate on the queen? It wasn't that one. Uh, yeah, the, and the king, and the king is certainly late, late, late in his career. He he uh, operated on on George the seventh, I believe, just just before his coronation. When he had, but that but that was later in his career, right? So, right. But, oh yes, you know, I think he did do something with Queen Victoria he, he as did, well. He made yeah, a that's crack right. about it, and it was a really funny line about I'm the only surgeon who I forget what it was, but it was a really funny line. Um, but this guy, Joseph Lister, who was born in 1827, and he, he, lived, to, he lived a ripe old age, 1912. He, he passed away, so 84 years. But he, it, it's really her subtitle. I mean, he really did take the butchering art to a level of modern science and, and greatly improved it. Oh, no, no question. And you, well, you were talking about the conditions in, in these hospitals. One of the things that I thought was just absolutely fascinating about that was that, that there was at one point a uh, a, 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 a title in the hospital that effectively you were the chief bug catcher yes right and your job your their job was to get rid of the the lice and the mattresses right yeah well guess what they were paid more than the surgeons, surgeons. <laughs> <laughs> yep. like that was a higher paying gig <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it kind of goes back to that Mises point of not being able to separate the janitor from the from the five star <laughs> chef in a restaurant, yeah. right? I mean, that's right, that's right. And and the other thing yeah. that I I found really interesting was she she was talking about I think it was the hospital in Scotland where he ended up working for a good chunk of his career, and you know, not only did the patients die, Ed, but the medical students got infections too. I mean, forty one medical students died. Between like 1843 and 1859, just from from infections. 
All right. Well, they're you know, first of all, they're not they're not wearing gloves of any sort, right? They're not they're not making a, a serious attempt to wash their hands of of any significance, right? And it, so, if they if they had a nick or a cut or something that they weren't even aware of, you know that 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 would likely that they would get the infection and, and die from sepsis as well. Right. And and you know what what I didn't know about uh, Joseph Lister was. He almost quit medicine after his brother died because he was so shook up and that no, nobody was able to save him and medical you know, science wasn't able to save his brother. He, he almost just became a preacher. And his mm-hmm. father, who was a big influence on his life, and she, that kind of weaves throughout the whole book, but he kind of talked him out of it. And boy, <laughs> thank, the world has the father to thank for keeping the son in this game because, boy, did he change everything for the better. Yep. Yeah. Well, when we get back from our break run, let's talk a little bit more about Joseph Lister and his his life and influence on medicine, even to this point. But then also this notion of ideas and how they are diffused throughout a profession and sometimes are inter- are blocked by the very p- people who uh, espouse to be proponents of that profession. I want to remind you, you get a hold of both Ron and me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Also, big reminder, and please uh, ma- make sure you make a note of this as you're listening to this as either live or in a podcast. Please go out and review us on iTunes. Uh, we love to get those reviews. Just take a moment, just quick jump out, give us a, a review, uh, rate the podcast, but also give us a review on it. We really love to see that. But right now, a word from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have, but have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
And we're here on the Soul of Enterprise talking about bad medicine, which is our way of really talking about the notion of ideas and how they influence the professions and then certainly how they influence the, the, the customers or patients of those professions. We're, we're looking mostly at medicine because there's much longer history, but uh, Ron, I think you and I both feel that th- this is something that is that is something that happens across all professions, certainly not just stuck in medicine, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, but let's talk a little bit about this guy, Joseph List, a little more. You set him up pretty good, you know, t- gave, gave his, his dates and how he lived to a, a ripe old age. But there were there were other folks that, that really did see some of the things that he did. Certainly a guy by the name of Ignaz Simmelweis, who many many people may have heard of, right? And he, he's the one who's, who insisted that, people, that, that, that surgeons wash their hands, especially when they went, Ron, ready from the morgue to delivering babies. He thought that yes. that was like a, it was like a real good idea. So maybe after leaving the morgue and before delivering a baby that, that you should wash your hands. Um, yes. And, and, and the doctors wouldn't believe it. And he started, no. this. he started doing this at 1847. So even, even really before Lister and, you know, he, um, he didn't publish his findings until 1860 because no journal would accept it. And he, he, uh, he actually reduced the, the, um, childbed death rate from, you know, uh, uh, where did it go? It went from 18.3% down to 1.2% mm-hmm. ch- child mortality and death just just by washing your hands. And he couldn't get his colleagues to do it. And he, you know, they confined him to a lunatic asylum in 1865. And two weeks later, he died. I, it, what scares me about this is I think this sometimes this is my fate, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, here's a guy who's screaming and and nobody's listening. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a it's a it's a very interesting story. And and look, I I, I still think that some of this this stuff is still a problem. I mean, I know there's been a big uptake for for more and more medical professionals to wash their hands when they go from room to room. Uh, I've actually seen it in hospitals where it's expected that when they come in, the first thing they're supposed to do is wash their hands in front of you. Yep. And, uh, you know, I don't think that that's, that this is a, a bad thing because there's still a tremendous amount of, of um, if I get the word right, aatrogenic, is that correct? Yeah. Aatrogenic. Iatrogenic. Illnesses. Yeah. So this yeah. is iatrogenic, iatrogenic that are, you know, caused by not necessarily doctors, but by, by the, the, the practice of medicine and by the medical establishment. And, you know, <laughs> if, if accountants and IT people killed 100,000 people a year, Ron, in the United States, you think that there would be some investigations? Oh, I know. I, I, it, <laughs> you know, and even after, even after Lister flushed out his germ theory and actually started to publish it, because he, you know, he had an experimental, he worked in a hospital and he was using this method, and he had tremendous results in terms of dropping the infection rate. When he tried to get his theories published, like even in the Lancet, which to this day is one of the most prestigious journals in in the uh, UK medical journals, they rejected him. They reject. Mm-hmm. They thought it was. They thought it was ridiculous. And isn't it funny that bloodletting, which is completely inefficacious medical procedure, used the Lancet, right? And and yet look right. at the title of the medical journal. I, you talk about <laughs> bad ideas dying hard. Uh huh. The other thing, Ed, too, that and 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 you have to kind of credit his father for this because his father used a microscope, and yes. and and that had a big effect. So Lister started using the microscope to to analyze 
germs and these other types of bacteria. And I'll tell you, this is something that's pointed out in the other book we're going to discuss. But the microscope, which was invented in 1677, 1677, simultaneously, by the way, with the telescope, right, right, which astronomers jumped all over. As late as 1820, so 150 years later, it had it still had no place in medical research. Doctors believed it was nothing but a toy. Yeah, well, they 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 said what they could, what you know, how how could what they couldn't see be the cause? Right, right. Yep. So if there was anything, if it was too small for them to see, then that that must that must not there might they it can't be real. You know, and that was Louis Pasteur too, is what he called the world of the infinitely small. Um, and and he at at one point, as I recall from this book, he you know he he was a well respected uh, chemist, and then started to propose some of these theories. And they're like, yeah, I don't know. We think that Louis's starting to lose it a little bit. Yes, yeah, because uh, Lister jumped all over Louis's ideas. Uh, mm-hmm. They became friends, right? I mean, I think he attended his funeral, uh, if I remember yeah. right, from the book. Um, but that whole fer- fermentation process had a big impact on some of Lister's theories as well. Um, the good news, I guess, looking at the, the silver lining in this cloud is Lister did end up creating some disciples, right? They were called Listerines, mm-hmm. um, who, who, <laughs> you know, who saw his, his methods actually work. And the people who never doubted his work <laughs> were the survivors, <laughs> and that that's a really important point right right oh, and just to, to to jump on that listerine if you're if you're finally making the connection yes listerine was named after joseph lister uh by the 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 what was it lambert pharmaceutical that originally became warner lambert but it was a a uh a uh, we're a chemist in in St. Louis, Missouri, Ron, that that named created this stuff Listerine using the same chemical that Lister was using, and then added some other stuff to it. But you know, now now that's still still a household world. We still still use it. You know. Yeah, I had I had uh, Doctor Joseph uh, Joshua Lawrence from 1879 is when he created Listerine. I had him as a doctor. Oh, okay. I thought it was just a chemist, but okay. Yep. In Pennsylvania. And then the other thing that I learned from this book is is the founders of Jay and Johnson and Johnson was also formed because directly of Lister's work because they started their company by making sterile dressings and sutures. Mm-hmm. Because just yep. changing the bandages and things like that, I mean, Lister had had a whole, you know, protocol that he he went for uh, or or he outlined. And, you know, so obviously they needed, you know, sterile bandages and things like that. But boy, it took him a long time to diffuse the work. Um, the, and, and, and I was really shocked, Ed, that the doctors in the, in the United States really, really just, just thought he was crazy. Thought he, when, he, when he came over here and did a tour and they just, you know, they said, oh, this is, this is ridiculous. Um, it wasn't until Mass General uh, started using his methods in 1877. Mm-hmm. So it took it took over a decade for this idea to to cross the Atlantic and be picked up, and and even then it's only being done in one hospital. Right. No. Exactly. And, and just to to tie this now, in fact, I, I even have a 
a quote here on that, that when I when I highlighted this in the book, I, my note is sounds like Baker, right? And uh, what what Lister s- said about about someone who who rejected his ideas, he says that he should dogmatically oppose a treatment which he so little understands, and which by his own admission he has never tried, is a matter <laughs> matter of a matter of small moment, right? And how many of the people who who just rejected this notion never even bothered to study it, like in a supposedly scientific profession, never even bothered to look at it? Yeah, I know, I know. In an evidence based, (laughs) you know, just it's 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 mind blowing. uh, Mind blowing. I mean, one of his assistants. I love this quote too from the book, Ed. He's one of Lister's assistants said, a new and great scientific discovery is always apt to leave in its trail many casualties among the reputations of those who have been champions of the older method. It's hard for them to forgive the man whose work has rendered their own of no account. Yep. I love that. I love that because yeah. it's so true. And it, it, it just goes to show, I mean, it's one thing to diffuse a technology or a method or a process into a, a marketplace. Like, you know, I think about, and there's a million examples, I think about going from dial-up to broadband, you know, or the modem or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're changing technology. I mean, look at the iPhone, right? Ten iterations or whatever the heck it's been. And, and those things diffuse pretty fast. But when you're talking about diffusing a new theory, paradigm, idea, maybe even business model into a profession, it's much, much more difficult. And I think that's that's kind of the big difference here. And that's a big part of my answer to why, hey, if you guys' ideas were so good, you know, why haven't they diffused? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. It, and bizarrely as that sounds, and I'm sure there's a lot of technologists who might might disagree with this, but technology is certainly easier to diffuse than a an idea about a business model. Yeah, for I forgot. Sure. I forgot who said this, but it's a great line. Somebody asked this guy, aren't you worried about, you know, just giving away all your good ideas? He said, oh, no, if your ideas are good, you're going to have to ram them down people's throats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and probably, I think that's probably true. true. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because they just re- reject it w- without the, without thinking about it. But. Anyway, th- this is just a, a, a really terrific book, and there's just again so many parallels to the work that that you've done for um, around value pricing. Uh, you know that that I, I saw so many things that made me pause, and then so it asked me this question, Ron: Is what can we learn? What what can we learn from from Joseph Lister's work, and apply it to the way that we go about sharing? these ideas. Did you have any, did you have any thoughts on that as you went through the book? Yeah, of course, you know, you always do. I mean, obviously you want to, I think he was very good at just, you know, continuing to publish his results. He obviously had influence on the medical students that he taught at the teaching hospital. So, and that's how he got some of these disciples, right? The, mm-hmm. the so-called Listerines. And of course, other students, he had, he started to gather a reputation. So other students started to seek him out and, I mean, that's one of the reasons I kind of started Verisage because I wanted to get a group of people who were disciples on this topic and and be able to have them, you know, go out and spread the message to people who are interested. Um, so I, I kind of like those parallels, but he was an incredibly patient guy. He wasn't, he wasn't, 
you know, a fanatic about his ideas. I mean, he didn't go out on the on the the circuit and really debate them or or you know engage in name calling or you know other other types of things that you usually see scholars do. I mean, he was mm-hmm. a real low, he was a really low keyed guy, and he just kind of mm-hmm. did what he did, and he kind of let the work speak for itself. Um, I mean, luckily it, it turned out well, but boy, it took a long time. I don't yeah, know what, and, what were your lessons from him for what we could do better or different. And I and I think that you you've hit on it, but it's to it's to loop something back in that you know we had had Howard Hansen on the show is to lower our level of anxiety about it. He he was clearly non anxious about it. I mean he he believed in it, but you're right. He didn't try to go force it down anyone's throat. He didn't if when he was invited, he would go on the speaking circuit, but he wasn't wasn't out to 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 forcibly change the world. He let the results speak for themselves, and he kept kept pounding on him over and over and over again just said look this is you know here's what i have now he would defend himself there's a couple of stories in the book about him defending himself yes but he never really went on the offensive which i think is kind of interesting yeah well you know one thing i mean here again war interferes but the franco-prussian war of 1870 um where you know he had some influence there with you know guidelines for wounded soldiers, and it created such astonishing results that he it, mm-hmm. a lot of his theories diffused a little bit quicker after that as well, and and that helps too. I mean, it's hard to fight and argue with results. You know, that's right. that's one of the arguments I always come back to, but but you know, Ed, that's not always true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Well, we're back on our on our last break or next break here, Ron. Uh, Ron, I remind you, the soul of enterprise.com is the website where you can go and listen to all previous shows that Ron and I have done, including see previews of upcoming shows. Please sign up for the mailing list, which is out there as well. And want to remind you always to patronize our sponsors. They're the one who keep keep us on the air. So when the, the, the there's ads over there, if there's, you're at all interested in what our sponsors have to say, whether it's Sage or Leading Results or Abacus Next, please click on their their sites and take a look around. We'd love for you to to let and let them know that hey, the Soul of Enterprise sent us over. We want to take a look at some of your stuff. Uh, and right now, a word from one of those sponsors, and that is Abacus Next. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Results CRM, the award-winning Abacus Next product, is a customer relationship management solution that will automate your business processes, streamline workflows, and deliver consistent results. Cloud-enabled to provide access to your users anytime from anywhere. Grow your business in 2018 with the number one QuickBooks CRM. To learn more about Results CRM, visit ResultsCRM.com. Clouds come in all shapes and sizes, and the Abacus Private Cloud is the perfect fit. Abacus Cloud enables all the desktop apps you know and love while providing unparalleled security to your business. Cloud functionality gives you the flexibility to work where you want, when you want, and from any device you want. Don't waste countless hours managing IT. Take back your time. Learn more at abacusnext.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? 
I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. As the years passed, there was a gradual shift in medical procedure from antisepsis, germ killing, to asepsis, germ-free practices. The very theory on which Lister had based his entire system seemed to demand that aseptic methods replace antisepsis, but he opposed this change because he felt that asepsis, which required scrupulous sterilization of everything within the patient's vicinity before the procedures commenced, was impractical if surgeons were to continue operating outside the controlled environment of a hospital. Ron, this is the the last quote I just wanted to share from Lindsay Fitzharris's great book, The Butchering Heart, Art, Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grizzly World of Victorian Medicine. And why I wanted to share that was because here is just another example of what was the eventual solution was, was one better or a little bit better than Lister's proposal and he opposed it. Now, in all fairness, he probably saw that it was better. He he just really opposed it on, let's call it economic grounds. He just thought that there w- wasn't going to be a way to do it. So he really couldn't couldn't see the future of asepsis as opposed to ana- anasepsis. So um, in fairness to him, I think he didn't necessarily oppose the, the idea so much as the, the implementation of it. And that leads to a question, Ron, is like, what what do we as professionals miss? I mean, you and I have been on the cutting edge, as I said, you more than me for a number of years. There's probably stuff that that we dig our heels into that there's a better solution out there. Not going back to the timesheet, of course, but a better solution that we're that we we probably oppose. And I think we need to be on the lookout for that. I, I agree, Ed. I mean, I, I think we've talked about this before, but I live in constant fear that my worldview is wrong. And mm-hmm. so if, if somebody comes and challenges it, you know, and I have to say that the thing that, that that's happened in the last year, more than anything in terms of challenging a, a, a core belief that I, I, I had already lost faith in it, but this really, really sent me over the cliff was, was when we interviewed Dr. Reginald Lee, and his book, you know, Lies, Damn Lies, and Cost Accounting, and just really taking down cost accounting, I mean, that's a core belief of accountants. And they don't see, I think they do, if they're intellectually honest with themselves, that it's just an opinion. But he proves it beyond such a shadow of a doubt that you just, now you're kind of out there without a rudder, and you're thinking, okay, where do I go from here? You know, luckily he gave us a place to go, which is, you know, model cash flow, model capacity, which is much better. But yeah, I, I constantly live in fear that even what we tout about the theory of value could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. Got, got to keep thinking. All right, well let's let's move on, Ron. You want you 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 have another book that is uh, it, along the same vein, and it's based around medicine, but 
uh, there are some other specific lessons that that this book points out that uh, butchering art doesn't. It does. And Ed, this was the first book I read that really kind of got me involved in this whole process. And it was from 2006. And the book is by the uh, is by David Wooten, who is the anniversary professor of history at the University of York. So he's in the UK. And now this guy, he's a historian. And his book is Bad Medicine, Doctors Doing Harm Since Hippocrates. And he says, you know, it, it, for 2400 years, Patients believed doctors were doing good. For 2,300 years, they were wrong. And, here, <laughs> and, and here's what I love, because he's got this historical perspective of a historian. And he's no medical basher, by the way. I mean, his, his, his daughter is, is graduated now. I think she's a psychiatrist. But she graduated med school, and he talks about that. And he talks about how modern medicine saved his life a couple different mm-hmm, times. Mm-hmm. So he's not he's not bashing on and we're not bashing on the medical profession. I'm certainly not. I think they do wonderful work. We're just looking at the history of it. But here's what he said and this really this really caught my attention. At the start of the book he says, "We know how to write histories of discovery and progress, but not how to write histories of stasis, of delay, of digression. We know how to write about the delight of discovery." but not about the attachment to the old and resistance to the new. That's profound if you think about it, right? Because, yeah, it's easy to tout discoveries. It's easy to tout innovations. And I I think about Charles Murray's book, Human Accomplishment, you know, 4,002 people who came up with these incredible inventions or whatever they were, meta strategies, as he likes to say. Uh, But here, Wooten just documents all of these different things. And, you know, he, he obviously talks about bloodletting and, and, and some of the old, older theories of, of illness and germs. But he, he makes three devastating arguments. He said, first, if medicine is defined as the ability to cure diseases, then there was very little medicine prior to 1865, which is Lister's germ theory. He right. said prior to that, he said what the what and and Wooten calls it Hippocratic medicine prior to eighteen sixty five. Doctors relied on bloodletting, purges, cautery, and emetics, all totally ineffectual, right? If not positively deleterious, uh, no matter how effectively they were administered. His second argument is effective medicine could only begin when doctors began to count and compare, such as using cl- clinical trials. And he said, third, the key development that made modern medicine possible is the germ theory of disease. But here's the interesting thing, Ed. He doesn't, he doesn't put down 1865, the germ theory of disease discovery, as a turning point. He said, it, 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 I'm sorry, as a transformation. He said it's a turning point. No doubt it's a turning point. Mm-hmm. But he still believes it wasn't until antibiotics in the 1940s that medicine began to have a net positive impact rather than just doing harm. Yeah, and you could you can I guess see that one of the things that 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 uh, was pointed out in 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 uh, the Lister book is is that as when anti anti not antiseptic, I'm sorry, when uh, and Stuff to knock you out. I can't think of oh, anesthesia, right? Yeah. Anesthesia, anesthesia. Can't think of the word. When anesthesia, th- that fatalities increased be- because more people were be- being put under the knife because they didn't have to, weren't going to yell and scream about it. Right. 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 So, 
you know, and that that gets to a you know a systems systems thinking challenge too. So it, it does, and there's a lot of that in in this Wooten book. I mean, I should say this Wooten book's like 300 pages. It's a very scholarly piece of work. It's it's not as entertaining as the as the Lister book, but if you're interested in this topic. It's fantastic. I mean, I, I think it's incredibly well written. And he has a whole, I mean, just list after list of examples of delays and resistance in the medical community. Let me just give you a couple. Penicillin, which we equate with 1940s, right, was actually discovered in 1872. But its effectiveness was doubted for 70 years among the medical community. Just another, I mean, 70 years, it's a long time to reject something that's, you know, has such beneficial effects. Anesthesia was first discovered to kill pain in 1795. It was first used in animals in 1824, and then dentists picked it up. One of the first dentists was um, a guy named Horace Wells in New York, who, uh, you know, was one of the first painless dentists, quote-unquote, and he was driven to suicide, Ed, because of the hostility of the medical profession for using this anesthesia in his dental practice. Wow, crazy. Um, you know, he talks about, uh, we've already talked about Semmelweis and the just, you know, washing your hands. But the thing he says, then he analyzes, okay, why the delay? And this goes back to your point about being able to, you know, cut off a leg in 30 seconds and, and perform mm-hmm. surgery very fast. I mean, these guys wielded, these uh, saws or scalpels or knives, you know, I mean, they were kind of like a, you know, an expert carver, you know, like, <laughs> like when you watch somebody who knows what they're doing, carve prime rib, you know, they're, they're really, right, right. he says, um, but he, but Wooten says, consider the psychological obstacles. He says, medicine is often involved doing things to other people that you normally should not do. Right. And he says, to think about progress, you first have to understand what stands in the way of progress in this case, the surgeon's pride in his work, his professional training, his expertise, his sense of who he is. Anesthetics made the work of surgery easier. They were no threat to a surgeon's incomes. The obstacle was the surgeon's own image of themselves. Right. Now, see, I find this fascinating, and I find this incredibly tied to not so much the billable hour, but the timesheet. The person mm-hmm. who, you know, bills the most is going to waive that timesheet as a badge of honor, you know, I did 2,500 hours last year or whatever, right? As a famous historian, Collingwood, this guy Collingwood said that the tailless dog praises taillessness, right? <laughs> 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 um, and and it, it has become part of the profession's self-image of itself. I mean, it's also obviously tied to income, right? If you feel like, right. you know, there's going to be income that follows. But I think even more than that... It is tied to who we think we are and our self-image. And, and, and that parallel is uncanny and disturbing. Well, even it's, it's so true. And, but even a more modern example, Ron, isn't, isn't ulcer treatments, right? The, the, the guys who, who said that ulcers were bacteria or a virus – Yes, and, and you know, for years and years and years, they actually find up find out, finally end up winning a Nobel Prize, but they were rejected. This was this was, and th- and this is in the nineteen seventies. This uh, happened actually late eighties, nineties, although, and they mm-hmm. got their Nobel Prize in two thousand and five. It it was roughly fifteen twenty year battle 
with the medical mm-hmm. community around the world. No publication would, pu- no peer-reviewed publication would publish them. They wouldn't let them speak at conferences. These are two doctors over in Perth, Australia. So we kind of said, you know, especially here in the USA, we were super arrogant about it, I have to say, uh, and said, oh, well, what do these people in the outback know? Who are they treating? You know, kangaroos. And the doctors got so frustrated, and they were in a teaching hospital in Perth, that one of the doctors walked in one day and drank out of the Petri dish that contained the bacteria that caused this specific type of ulcer. He gave himself an ulcer. And then, of course, he used his cocktails of antibiotics to, to cure it. And then people started to, to pay attention, but he had to do it to himself. Um, and, and, and this is incredibly well documented in the great third book. And then we'll take our break, Ed. But that book is The Great Ulcer War. And it's written by a guy named William S. Hughes, who's a, who's a physician himself. It was published in 2014. And boy, when I read that, I mean, we're not talking about the 1860s anymore, even the 1940s. We're talking about 1990, 2000, when, you know, supposedly evidence-based medicine and all this stuff. And here for 15 years, these guys were ostracized and not given a platform. And, and, there, and it took this long for their theory to diffuse. It's just absolutely amazing to me. But we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about it, folks, when we get back. And in the meantime, if you want to contact Ed or myself, you can do so at asktsoe at verisage.com. We will post full show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com with the books that we've been discussing today. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. There is no blueprint for running the perfect firm. No way to know the challenges you'll face. But your journey does not have to be an odyssey. Experience what it is like for every part of your firm to be connected. Experience a practice management tool where everything is just a click away. Experience Office Tools. To learn more, visit officetools.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here talking about bad medicine and really bad ideas and why bad ideas have such a long shelf life. Ed, uh, as we were prepping for the show, I was reading an interview with a notable consultant. I will not name names. That's not the point. Um, but he was talking about value pricing, and he works in the same space we do. And he was asked directly about the no timesheet movement. And he mm-hmm. said, I realize that there's firms out there that have done it. And he said, and I commend them. He said, but there have been smaller firms, and I don't ever see this happening in larger firms. It's, in other words, it's not scalable. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and I have to say, you know, I thought a lister who's, you know, doing this procedure, and the, it's a hospital, and it's probably one of the biggest hospitals in, what was it, Edinburgh? Um, yeah. You, know, you could always say, well, he's out in the outback. He's in the small hospital. <laughs> I mean, you know, the sample size is small. It's the same thing they said about the ulcer guys, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. And and I, I read this, and I said, why would you on, on one side of your mouth say you commend this movement of getting rid of the timesheet? And then on the other, say that it will never happen in large firms and they're still needed. I, those, I mean, doesn't he who says A have to say B? Or Cognitive dissonance, Ron. Cognitive dissonance. <laughs> it's, it's how we all remain sane. It's, <laughs> it's that's, true. That's it's, the answer. Yeah, no, I, I, I had the opportunity to work with a firm, firm this week and we had a great meeting and, the, of course, brought in there for to talk about value pricing and value conversation. And inevitably, the timesheet comes up. And, and the, of course, that wasn't the initial purpose of me in there. But, you know, I had I had I had to just destroy it. And, you know, I, I, I shake my head when I when I hear these folks and, and I did get the question. I said, well, I, you know, and, and it's phrased almost exactly the way that you you said it, which was I get how you do it for customers i get i get how you how you price stuff that's for customers but i i just don't understand how we can't do it to measure because we got to measure our costs internally yeah right so i had to go nuclear on them yeah right i had to go nuclear and and just a quick reminder the nuclear option is for me to ask well how many people are here have filled out a timesheet all the hands go up and then i ask well how many of you have never put exactly the right um, what 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 actually happened on the timesheet down on the timesheet, either too many hours or too few hours, and every hand remains up. Yep. And and it, I I I can't see how anyone can hold on to the notion that that then then it's now actual cost of anything after that experiment, right? Because you, we just had a room full of people admit that they don't put on the timesheet what actually happened; they put what they think should have happened. So the it, 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 the, the timesheet is filled out as an optimum, not reality. And then I go, go further to say, and look, this doesn't, be, doesn't make that you're, you're, you're wrong or evil people. It's just that we, are, we humans game the system. And I said, I, I'm sure that some of you have even go, gone so far as to not put hours down for a particular customer because you knew that project was over budget, but you needed credit for those hours. So you put it to another, another project that was under budget. Yep. And, and Ed, I've tried to tried to do that, you know, with the nuclear question. I've also mm-hmm. tried to say, okay, let's say you have a, you know, a 10 hour job at $300 an hour. Let's say you don't do that job. Does that mean you save $3,000 in cash? 
Mm-hmm. Now, and people will cock their head and look at you and go, well, no, it wouldn't affect your cash. Well, then how does it affect your cost? <laughs> right. <laughs> the, and, and, and the other thing is, I, I tried to say it this way. Customers don't have costs. Services, even products, don't have costs. Organizations have costs. Right. But that, that's... Right. that's and, and the other thing that people will argue with us about the opportunity, well, you have to know the opportunity cost. Yes, I agree. Opportunity cost is really important. I mean, I've been saying for years that I don't want surgeons piercing ears. But here's the thing with opportunity cost. You've got to know opportunity cost at intake, not after the fact. Studying mm-hmm. after the fact is too late. That, then, then the opportunity cost is now a sunk cost. And you can right. cry over sunk costs all you want, but it's not going to do you any good. So... You know, this kind of goes back to the opening question that about, hey, if your guys' at Verisage, if your theories are so good, why haven't they diffused? Part of it is what we've been talking about with bad medicine and these, you know, these how long a, a bad idea can stick around. I think there's some other things, too. I think metrics play a role. What we measure, right, mm-hmm. is really important. This is where business model innovation comes in because if you change the business model, you're going to change what you measure. The metrics have to change as well. And that's part of the p- puzzle that most people don't seem to understand. The other thing is, I think in the professions, for the most part, there's no real burning platform. You know, And, and one of the things that I loved about Wooten's book is he does point this out. And this is a very good point. He said germ theory wasn't really uh, adopted because it was efficacious. Germ theory was adopted because the medical profession knew it was in crisis. So they were, yeah, they were, they were having problems. Yes. And, and, and he documents that really well. And it kind of goes back to what Steve, you know, I also thought about what Stephen Covey has said. He said, you know, if you want to make incremental changes, sure, work on your practices, right? But if you want to make significant changes, work on your paradigms, your, your mental models. And I think what's, what, what is so illustrative about this, this medicine analogy is minds are slower to change than markets. If that makes sense. Minds are slower to change than markets. Yes, okay, that makes it for, for sure. Markets can change on a dime. Changing people's minds, not not so much. Yep, got it. Got and, it. And I and I think the other the other way I answer this question about why haven't these ideas diffused if they're so darn good is you, you got to put some of the blame on the partnership structure. The partnership structure is not a hotbed, you know, of innovation. Right, we're back to Margaret Thatcher's consensus is the negation of leadership, mm-hmm. and and. I also have to put some of it just on just lack of leadership, but but more importantly, lack of vision. There doesn't seem to be a great vision among professional firms. You know, it seems like, oh, we need to increase efficiency by 5% or we need to get our realization rates up or our billable hours up or what. I mean, really, that's what's going to inspire you? That's the vision? It, 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 you know, we're back to Martin Luther King on the steps of the, the U.S. Capitol. You know, I have quarterly objectives. I mean, no. it's not it's not an inspiring vision. No, it's it's clearly not. And one last thing on the partnership model, Ron, is is be, and is because it is not it's beyond consensus, right? You can even have one one partner and say they're the tax partner who refuses to get rid of timesheets and that causes everybody in the firm to have to use timesheets because you have one partner who refuses to move, move along. So uh, you have to that's that you have to overcome not only the, the the model of, you know, getting more people to agree, you have to get almost everyone to agree. And that goes back to their self-image of themselves. See that that partner who right. who rejects it is probably the biggest biller in the firm. We're back to the tail as dog. 
Yep. Crazy yep. tastelessness. So anyway, Ed, fascinating. I'm, I'm so glad that you liked the Lister book because I, I recommended that to you. And that's always that's always tough to recommend people books because what if they hate it? You know, it's like setting up <laughs> a blind date. Um, but what do we have on store for next week? Next week, Ron, we're going to talk about the value guarantee and also of also Christopher Hart's book, Extraordinary Guarantees. Oh, fantastic. I think it's a topic that's long overdue. We should have talked about it a long time before this, but I, I look forward to that. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. In the meantime, check out our show notes at soulofenterprise.com. We'll post all of the books that we talked about today along with some other interesting things. Also, you can contact Ed or myself by sending us an email to asktsoe.com. At Thanks for listening, folks. Have a tremendous weekend.